Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on our programme this week, the trouble with mandatory arbitration when bosses behave badly. The reason why this has come to light recently is because of the prevalence of um, workplace sexual harassment cases where people who want to speak out against their employers are discovering, in fact, they must go into private arbitration. And medicinal cannabis in Germany. Problems of both supply and demand. Cannabis is pretty expensive when purchased over the counter in a pharmacy. It's about 24 euros a gram, which is um, well above double what it costs to buy it on a street corner in an average German city. But first, there's been a seismic shift in the hegemony on Wall Street. Morgan Stanley has overtaken Goldman Sachs, its arch rival, in terms of market capitalization for the first time in more than a decade, breaking through the $100 billion mark. So what's behind Morgan Stanley's recent success? Tom Easton is our American finance editor and joins us on the line from New York. Hello, Tom. Hi, thank you for calling me. Tom, I, I use the word seismic. Is, is that overregging it or is this really a big deal, this change in the leadership on Wall Street? Well, I think it's important what it says about Goldman's approach to business and it's important about what it says about Morgan's families. So in terms of Goldman's, its success was always based on it somehow being particularly clever. And its cleverness has not been demonstrated as much in recent years as it has in the past. And that's brought a tremendous amount of skepticism about its potential to perform. It's trying to change. It's trying to go from expand from its very, very high finance niche into taking a very sophisticated approach of doing electronic lending and deposits with people who have modest or low incomes. But there's a lot of skepticism about whether that model can really succeed. Now, Morgan Stanley, on the other hand, prior to the financial crisis, was taking a lot of risk in its business. And that proved singularly ill-timed. And the Morgan Stanley that has emerged from the financial crisis is a dramatically different firm. Its reliance on trading has declined precipitously, particularly on the kind of fixed income trading that's so important to Goldman Sachs. It's still a huge force in investment banking, but it's really the biggest change is it's gone from about under a fifth of its business in wealth management to now about a, a half of its business in wealth management. And that wealth management business has changed as well. Now a much more stable business, they get a lot of money from fees. And so the company is just a tremendous amount more stable. And people want that now on a Wall Street firm. Now, the odd thing about Morgan Stanley's business, it is just not spectacularly profitable. I mean, return on equity is now a little bit over 9%. And it's pledged to get between 10 and 13%. These are not fantastic numbers. But I think a lot of um, analysts, and I guess the market itself, thinks this is an eminently plausible, sensible way to run an investment firm. So from what you're saying, it sounds as if to be a successful American investment bank these days, firstly, you've got to be boring. And secondly, you've got to get out of banking and into investment management. You have to be more boring. Morgan Stanley's 
return on equity before the financial crisis exceeded 20%, but it gave all of that back during the crisis. So maybe those were just illusory profits. So now I guess people feel that if it's making nine or 10 and it's gonna go maybe up to 12 or 13, those are real profits. And therefore, you know, maybe dullness is kind of a good thing. So that's, that's true. And I guess they also feel that the investment banking business is very, very volatile. And, you know, Morgan Stanley still does it, and they have a very good franchise on it, but it's got to be kind of anchored in something else. So maybe that's just too flaky to hinge an entire business on. And it has some qualities that actually tie in well with wealth management. You know, companies need to have their shares underwritten, and they need to raise debt, and then clients want to buy that sort of thing. So being a conduit between people that have money and entities that want to raise money makes sense. And so right now, that's where we are on Wall Street. Now, I, I know you've been talking to James Gorman, Morgan Stanley's CEO. Uh, did he hold out any prospect of change, any big developments for Morgan Stanley? Or are they basically happy with what they're doing and on a set course now? Well, the remarkable thing about Gorman is that he was the first CEO on Wall Street. And I think he would say it, but everyone else would too, who really outlined exactly what his targets were. So if you spoke to him four or five years ago, he would say he had to get down the amount of compensation revenues. He had to raise the return on equity from one thing to another. He had to change the margins in wealth management. And in fact, every time he's laid out some sort of plan, it's come to pass. So I think people have tremendous respect for the CEO who can somehow say, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to do it. I mean, they average, the, the common Goldman line was, we'll take advantage of opportunities as they happen. And we'll be so fast in taking advantage of opportunity, people will think we were ahead of the game, but we're really just responsive. But Gorman has been different. He said, this is what we're going to do. And I think people want that. It just seems like it's a well-managed firm. And there are many, many things that have been said about Wall Street firms and prior decades, but well-managed probably wasn't one of them. But do you think we're seeing a really secular change, as it were, or is it just something that is a function of the markets as they are at the moment? I mean, when market volatility picks up, won't trading businesses, Goldman's strong point, look better? And as passive investment, index tracking funds and so on, gain strength, won't Morgan Stanley's business model begin to look a bit sick? You know, I think even Morgan Stanley expects that Goldman's trading businesses will improve. And so those may begin to look more appealing. And there is pressure from index funds and other forms of passive investment that many people will use. But there are two issues that are involved. The first is that investment firms have to carry much, much more capital than they used to. In fact, Morgan Stanley's is 130% of what it was pre-crisis. And that's just, that will decline a little because of regulatory tweaks that are going on right now, but it's just not going back to pre-crisis levels. I mean, investment firms are not going to be able to do a lot of things they were able to do in the past. And what they do do, they're going to have to anchor in more capital, which will dilute returns. So I think that that reality will be true as long as concern about another financial crisis lingers. And that, that may be ebbing in other parts of the American economy, but it is not ebbing on Wall Street. As far as passive investments and so forth, um, there are many people who are going to do them. The average age of, I think, a um, client for some of the electronic brokerages like Betterment and Wealthfront is about 37. And for Morgan Stanley's wealth management operations, it's late 50s. But the reality is that, at least in America, where they really centered their business, 
complexity is growing even as data availability is growing. I mean, it's just very complicated to understand tax consequences and spending consequences and healthcare consequences and insurance consequences and, you know, all sorts of financial consequences on a person's affluence. And the business that Morgan Stanley is building um, is actually kind of well suited to helping people with that sort of thing, even if it doesn't produce the kind of returns or it can't even promise or it isn't bothering to promise ultimately very, very high returns. Tom, thanks very much. Thank you very much. That was Tom Easton, our American finance editor. Next, imagine wanting to speak out against your employer, perhaps because you've been harassed or discriminated against, only to find your access to the courts is blocked. It turns out you signed away your right to sue when you started working for your employer. An increasing number of American employees are finding themselves in this situation. Rachana Shanbog, our business correspondent, has been investigating mandatory arbitration and joins me now. Hello, Rachana. Hi, Simon. Rachana, first, how widespread are these arbitration clauses in contracts? Well, they're becoming increasingly common. Back in the early 1990s, about 2% of private sector employees who weren't members of unions were covered by these sorts of agreements. But recent research suggests that now the number is at about over 50% of employees are affected by these. And they seem to be more prevalent also in low-wage industries. And what's wrong with them? We'd say employees are signing away their rights. Is there evidence they're actually losing out by this? Often what seems to happen is that employees find in their employment contracts there'll be a clause that says um, they must take any future disputes into private arbitration rather than going to the courts. And the reason why this has come to light recently is because of the prevalence of um, workplace sexual harassment cases where people who want to speak out against their employers are discovering, in fact, they must go into private arbitration. And you can do that, can you, as an employer? You can impose that kind of arbitration clause on employees, even though you may be breaking the law later on. That's right. I mean, that is the case in America. Um, These sorts of clauses have been upheld by the Supreme Court uh, for the past 20, 30 years. So what can be done? Do these clauses need to be outlawed altogether or is there some way of mitigating the effect? Well, there are some advantages to arbitration. It's a very quick and flexible way of resolving a dispute. The risk of banning mandatory arbitration is that you might see an increase in frivolous claims that are being being made against employers. And in any case, it seems really unrealistic to expect these clauses are going to be banned. They've been upheld by the Supreme Court and attempts in Congress to try and ban them have just failed to get off the ground. So perhaps instead, some changes need to be made to try and make mandatory arbitration fairer. For example, employees must be required to make an informed decision when they consent to these clauses. Clauses that are hidden away in staff handbooks should not be enforced by the courts. Another example might be to make appealing much easier. At the moment, the bar to making an appeal is extremely high. Perhaps allowing employees to some access to the court might be helpful. And I should have asked this earlier, because I suppose it's crucial, who is the arbitrator? I mean, typically when it's a dispute between companies, it's some chamber of commerce or some neutral body, typically in a, in a third country. What is it when it's the dispute between employee and employer? Well, often the arbitration agreement contained in the employment contract might specify that the arbitrator will be from a particular firm, for example. Arbitrators are typically lawyers who arbitrate part-time or former judges, but there's no requirement that they need to know the law. As far as I understand it, anybody can set up as an arbitrator. And that might be a problem because they might have repeated business from the same employer. And as a result, 
they might be either implicitly or explicitly biased against the employee. And is there any way of, of guarding against that uh, employer capture of the arbitrator? One idea might be um, to ensure that the arbitrator discloses any conflict of interest. That doesn't appear to be the case at the moment. So if the arbitrator were required to say that they'd worked with the employer before, that could try and get round the repeat business problem. Another idea might be to try and randomise arbitrators so that they're not seeing the same employers over and over again. Rachel Schemberg, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. And if you've got any thoughts on arbitration at work, please do get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. And finally, medicinal cannabis became legal in Germany last March, supposedly meaning that every patient who needs it for health reasons can get it. But in practice, that's not turning out to be so. Jeremy Cliff is our Berlin correspondent. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. What's the problem? Is it just that demand was far greater than expected? Well, that's one reason. Before this legalisation, about 1,000 patients had special licences to obtain or use cannabis for medicinal purposes. And the German medicinal agency expected that about 5,000 would ultimately use this new freedom to uh, get cannabis from pharmacies. In fact, the number of prescriptions in the first three months alone was 12,000. And many people expect that to rise to 30,000 later this year. And there are a lot of Germans who haven't found things like morphine, for example, to be effective in curing pain or dealing with issues like um, HIV or hepatitis or Parkinson's and, and are turning to cannabis as a better alternative without some of the side effects. So there's, there's very high demand, but it's also problems with supply. What are the supply problems? Well, the, the first is that the import of cannabis uh, into Germany is extremely heavily regulated. And so a lot of suppliers in countries like Holland and Canada, which are the main sources of medicinal cannabis for Germans, either are choosing not to send their cannabis to Germany or are doing so only with great difficulty. This is also going to be be a problem in the summer when Canada legalises cannabis and the demand for cannabis in Canada will rise, leaving little left over for the Germans. Cultivating it within Germany is also difficult because it's extremely heavily regulated and, and, and regulators haven't yet actually appointed certain companies to supply domestic demand, not to mention the fact that it of, course, it of course takes time to grow. So demand is very high and it can't be met at the moment by either domestic production or import. Coming back to the demand question, from what you're saying, there's no suspicion that any of these prescriptions are anything other than genuine, that, that recreational users are cooking up medical complaints to get cannabis. Well, in fact, there, there is quite a lot of scepticism about that. And one of the threads running through this story is a certain prejudice, I think, against patients or those who are experiencing genuine medical complaints and who see in cannabis a better treatment option than, than what's otherwise available. Patients that I've spoken to say that um, doctors are often quite sceptical about prescribing it. They're much more comfortable prescribing conventional painkillers like morphine. Um, and then there's the question of whether health insurance companies will cover the cost. Cannabis, partly because of the heavy regulations around preparing it and providing it, is pretty expensive um, when purchased over the counter in a pharmacy. It's about 24 euros a gram, which is well above double what it costs to buy it on a street corner in an average German city. My understanding is that about a third of cases where patients ask health insurance companies to fund the costs are turned down. And so some, though they're given the prescription by the doctor, don't get it covered on their insurance and have to go privately, which of course for many is just not financially an option. And so plenty are finding either that the pharmacies don't have it because of the supply problems I've described, and that when they do, it costs so much outside of their health insurance that they can't actually fund the treatment themselves. 
so old-style street dealers still have a business. Jeremy Cliff in Berlin, thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or do visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.